If you're a farmer in New York State, join the New York State Grown and Certified program to let people know your food is grown right, right here. Learn more at certified.ny.gov. I'm Greg Blaze, host of Cutting the Curd. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Good afternoon. I'm Patrick McAndrew and you're listening to Why Food, a show about people and their connection to food and drink. Now, the past, episode, the past seven episodes have been focused on food, but this week we're exploring the world of wine. This week I have Ali Shaper with me, the founder and winemaker of Brooklyn Enology. Thank you for joining me today, Ali. Thank you so much for having me. Can you tell the listeners what Enology is? It is the art and science of winemaking. Science is very deeply rooted in the company, isn't it? Uh, yeah, you could say so, yeah. Because mm-hmm. when we go back to your past, you mm-hmm. had a past in engineering. Yes. It's my wonderful, nerdy, geeky past. Yeah, because <laughs> I find that real interesting. Because let's go back to the start of it, and then we can mm-hmm. take the transition up to where how we came to Brooklyn Enology. Yeah. So even even before you, you studied engineering, mm-hmm. did you grow up with food and wine? Was there a history of that in your family? No, I was one of those like really fussy kids. Were you really? Uh, yeah. It's kind of weird that I ended up in in the food and beverage industry at all, because um, it was a pretty good chance that I was going to be pretty malnourished. <laughs> um, was, it, was it just that you didn't want to eat that stuff and your parents were trying to say, come on, this is good for you, um, try this? Well, or, yeah, I was just I was just fussy, really fussy, yeah. And what stage did you come out of your shell? Uh, probably about 25. Really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, yeah, I was just really picky for a long time. I don't know why or, or what it is. Um, I'm still not the most adventurous eater, but I'm definitely you know, a lot more than, you know, back in the day. If you will. So growing up, yeah. was it all, was science the main thing in your mind, or was it how um, things work, or what was what was the what was the area of engineering that drew you to it? Well, it was it was a lot of familial influence actually. So my my father was an engineer, as was my grandfather, and, um, and there's just a lot of people in my family who were very math and and sciences oriented, and I always was very curious about how things worked. I think um, my parents could probably tell you better, but as a kindergartner up through second grade I think I've pulled out every book in the library about the planets and I could recite to you the names of all the moons of Jupiter that we knew at the time and you know I quickly memorized the order of the planets in the solar system and when the eclipse dates were going to be and all that you know but um, and growing up at that stage in your life what did you think did you think I want to go into space did you um my mom loves to tell the story that uh uh she said, uh, what did I tell, what did she say to me? Something, you know, we're doing, talking about what do you want to be when you grow up and that kind of thing. And I said, I want to be an astronaut. <laughs> and then she'd go, oh, boo, and pretend to cry. And he'd be, don't worry, <laughs> don't worry, mom, I'll be home in time for dinner. <laughs> <laughs> but I think a lot of that, that sort of, you know, uh, space fantasy was also a lot about creativity and, and adventure. And I was a very artistic kid as well and I spent a lot of time in music and I'd spend hours entertaining myself drawing or putting together crafts I, I think I taught myself to knit when I was about 10 you know I just said oh that looks fun I had a, an aunt that would crochet and I and I loved to love doing things with my hands and 
So it always was dabbling in this stuff. So was it the, was it the attraction to activity more so than the attraction to the the analytical side of it? Well, it's both. Yeah, I definitely yeah. have a really analytical side, um, but I also have a very strong instinctive creative side too. Um, but you know, in in the course of being guided by parents as to what to do, what to be when you grow up, you know, art and music look a lot less safe and stable than engineering does. Definitely. You know? So, and it, and you know, it, to me as a teenager at the time, it made sense. You know, it's also what I was good at, and um, you know, I also wanted to be able to make a living. And so, you know, for what I knew about myself at the time, I said, okay, engineering is the way to go. Um, so that brought you to Cornell? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you did your four years at Cornell? I did a lot of getting my butt kicked at Cornell, yes. Really? <laughs> well, it's, it's, yeah, it's a, it's, um, it's a tough program. It's definitely a tough program. So, um, And while you were there during the four years, because there's yeah. a lot of people that I've had on the show and they mm-hmm. would say that during those early days, mm-hmm. they would look at it and think, yeah, this is good or maybe it's easy or mm-hmm. there's an aspect to it that I enjoy or obviously the ultimate goal that a lot of people kind of look at in their early days is, well, this will make me money and this will be a career. Mm-hmm. But was there another side to you that thought, I don't know if if this isn't allowing me to explore that other part of myself that I want to let out. Yeah, there, there was that part, you know. But I did go into engineering school, you know, sort of with a with a design in mind, you know, because I was still interested in in um, satellites and I had a uh, or you know, space travel or sending probes to planets or even potentially be actually becoming an astronaut. And so I saw this as an avenue to 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 move in that direction. Um, and then it wasn't until about. I guess it was my close to my final year of of, of college, and um, Cornell has a hotel school as well, and they have a large beverage program, beverages program that you can focus on in the hotel school. And there's um, there's plenty of great colleagues of mine all around the city that have come out of that hotel program, um, and they do open up their um, well, I'll call their wines 101 class. Uh, to the entire university so long as you're 21. And so, of course, you know, when all you're doing is statistics and mathematics and and twisting your brain all day long, wine sounds like it's a pretty good break from everything else. And so it was really just I chose it because it was such a different thing than what I was doing all day long every day anyway. Um, and it was an accidental discovery for me because there was not wine on the table in my house growing up. There and during your three years or four years in Cornell, wine wasn't was wine your choice of drink. Well, sometimes, <laughs> <laughs> amongst other things. <laughs> was it drank to appreciate or drank for use? Both. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, you know, I part of the impetus of taking that class too was because you know there was wine around. So since Cornell is in the Finger Lakes, and Finger Lakes is a, one of the wine regions of New York, you know, it was around. And of course, there's whatever else you can buy. Um, but you know, as far as that point where I said, Hmm, maybe there's something else I want to do other than engineering, you know, that's it, that, that sort of planted the seed right there, you know, in the course of having to do the work for this class, you know, there was, there were tastings every session and, um, and it touched upon most of the major wine producing countries and, and so on. So it was a pretty comprehensive overview and it, it just really grabbed my imagination. And when you looked at it and you went there, mm-hmm. was it, because I'm trying to think now what my first impression was the first time I was kind of introduced to wine mm-hmm. when I went to a winery. 
And a lot of it went over my head, to be totally honest with mm. you. But when, when you went there, were you looking at it kind of in that science mind thinking, right, OK, I can get this. I can understand what the process is or how they're actually how this is all working to end up in the bottle and taste so good. I didn't really think about that. It was more. It was about the the sensory experience. It 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 woke up that creative, reawakened that creative side to me. Um, so that ignited the fire. Yeah, it sort of ignited the fire. And you know, of course, in in you know when you take a class, they discuss about how it's made, and, and that was pretty straightforward for me to visualize. Right. Um, but you know what what drew me to it as as a something that I that I love as a beginning of a passion was oh. You know, there's this. First of all, it opened up a whole other way of viewing the world to me because I was so very, you know, in, in analytical. And even though I was still doing creative things in other parts of my life, but as far as experiencing the world in the sense of, in the context of taste and smell, that was not my thing. You know, I was that person who, you know, I wanted chicken and I didn't want beef and I didn't want fish and da da da. You know, it's like <laughs> so. All of a sudden, there's this whole new flavor sensation. I went, wait a second. You know, <laughs> I like this. There's some. Oh, that's why people liked. Okay, I get it. (laughs) (laughs) And at what stage did you think, "Wow, I might, I might pursue this. I might go for, I might go for something in the wine world." Probably not for another few years, really. You know, so I I finished my engineering degree. I became a professional engineer. Um, What kind of stuff did you work on? um, The first job out of school was with uh, a company that produced global positioning systems devices so mostly uh, GPS devices for um, uh, fleets of trucks um, they're just getting into sort of the personal devices that you could take and go on hiking and things like that um, so it was in those days when when GPS was really starting to become commercialized and it wasn't just used for the military uh, so I was working in their uh, circuitry assembly unit doing process engineering and quality control and eventually got into um, sort of more broad category category called manufacturing engineering, which essentially means that you become a liaison between the designers and the production personnel because sometimes the two teams don't talk. You know, there's a, there's a practicality to how you have to build something, um, but what a design engineer wants to do is fit all the features, as many as possible, as close together and in, as, you know, in an interesting-looking box. But then when it comes down to machinery that's available or whether a human hand has to get in there or whether somebody has to be able to see around you know one part to look at another part to make sure it's put together properly you know those two parties don't always speak the same language and think the same way so I was that person in between that was the um, diplomat (laughs) and how did you feel when you were doing all that work Um, I really enjoyed it a lot because uh, that, that's just how my mind works. You know, it's, it's kind of discipline where you have to be able to see the forest through the trees and see how all the spokes of the wheel make up the entire wheel. And um, so you're working with the designers. You're not just working with electrical engineers, but mechanical engineers. And you're working with people who are managing the budgets and managing the whole project because it's not just about building something well but doing it efficiently uh, in the context of both time and money because those are essentially... Great training to start yeah. off with in your early days in life. Huge, huge training. And it's you're a learning real... so many core concepts of a business. Yeah. You know, engineering is not just about running formulas. It's really about it's designing a system. And a lot of that is just very intuitive. And so, you know, this kind of study and this sort of work really sets you up uh, as a way to think. And it's a kind of thinking that I have found extraordinarily useful in everything I do in life. So, you know, it's 
it's exactly the kind of thinking you need to when you start imagining, okay, I want to make a product. Who's going to want it? How am I going to make it? Where am I going to find my pieces and parts? In this case, you know, where am I going to find grapes and bottles and corks and blah, 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 blah. How am I going to manage when they arrive, when I'm going to spend the money on them, and so on and so forth. So it's, it's basically what this whole field is of manufacturing engineering is, is cohesion of all these variables and when they need to appear and when they need to interact in order to create a working system. And during this time, was wine following you around? Were you, were yes, you testing? Yes, it was, it was like, you know, you got the little, you got the shoulder angel and you got the shoulder devil, you know, and the shoulder angel is going, you can be really successful as an engineer and be really happy in life and live in a cubicle forever and have something really steady. And, da, da, da. and then the little devil is going, let's go have some wine. <laughs> you know? And that's the belly you listen to. <laughs> yeah, and it just would, couldn't flick it off, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so when did you say, right, I'm going to listen to you. I'm going to, I'm yeah. going to go and follow the wine. Well, you kept tugging on my earlobe for crying out loud. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it's, you know, after I graduated from school, I ended up in the Silicon Valley. And that's, of course, conveniently close to, um, to lots of wine regions. And uh, the second job that I, that I had out there um, had a schedule set up where it was so such a great working schedule. And it was such a grand time to be working. Everything was booming. But um, uh, they arranged it so that you'd had to work nine hours every Monday through Thursday and then eight hours only every other Friday. So over two weeks, it'd be 80 hours, but you'd have every other Friday off. So I had a three-day weekend every other weekend. So let's go to Big Sur. Let's go hiking. Let's go to the wine region. You know, So it just maintained as a as a hobby and just something I enjoyed doing. And, you know, during all this time, just really exploring taste, smell, flavor, and just soaking up whatever I could, whatever I could learn. And, uh, you know, sometimes, you know, you found something when it's not an effort to learn something, when it just absorbs into every cell. Yeah, for sure. Mm -hmm. And you Mm -hmm. moved back to New York then to pursue it a bit further, did you? Yeah, well, I didn't have that as the design in mind. It was more like I'm homesick and... And a little bit burnt out. And Where are you from in New York? Uh, I grew up in Nassau County on Long Island. And, um, yeah. So in the end, you really brought it all back home. I guess, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Long Island keeps uh, sucking me back in, you know. So as much as I keep trying to escape, it keeps sucking me back in. So you came back here, yeah. you were a bit homesick, but you still mm-hmm. had this love for wine. Yeah. I ended up, um, when I came back from California, I didn't go back to Long Island. I ended up in the Hudson Valley for a couple of years. And... Um, and I, I really came back with no designs whatsoever. I knew I was just, I knew I was not happy. I was not passionate about the lifestyle that I was living. You know, it's not like I didn't like engineering, but I didn't have that sense of getting up and jumping out of bed and being excited about going to do what I had to do. And I just, you know, I learned that I am no good in a cubicle. Uh, it constrains me. It, I feel trapped um, I'm sure you share unhealthy. the same sentiment that so many other people. Yeah, do. yeah. I don't think human beings were designed to live in, you know, a, a fluorescent lit beehive. You know? Right. Um, and it just, it really, I was depressed, and I just had to leave. And I, you know, it was one of those times in life where I just had to make a stopgap and say, no, I have to figure out something else. And I didn't know what that something else was. So, came home to New York, home-ish, since I wasn't at home, home, um, and literally sat on my butt for a few months going, oh, I don't know what to do. And, you know, you just start flipping through classifieds, you know, because I, I, I knew I needed to do something, but I wasn't quite sure what I was going to do. And, you know, the next most obvious thing, of course, was to find another engineering job, but there were not nearly as many the opportunities for engineering 
on the East Coast than on the West Coast at the time. And so, you know, I basically had a choice of three different large companies, and it would essentially end up in the same place where that I left, you know. Um, so I said, okay, I'll find something to do for fun for six months, give myself some breathing room, figure it out, and before I have to go and be a grown-up again. And it just was pure serendipity that one day, you know, after weeks and weeks searching through the classifieds, this is like opening up the newspaper before Craigslist days. <laughs> um, Circling what looks good. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I still have the little. I still have the little. Uh, the little ad somewhere. Do you really? Yeah, I have it in some you know memory box at yeah. home somewhere. And it was uh, in literally the first line of this ad was, "Do you love wine?" And I thought, "Why, yes, I do." <laughs> <You know? laughs> and it was an ad for a tasting room in, in at a winery in the Hudson Valley. And so that day, I called up. Got myself over there for an interview, and uh, you know, I tried to talk very enthusiastically about how much I love wine and, and all of that because it's very hard to get your foot in the door in, in the industry sometimes. And I think I got hired because I told them I'd build them a database to manage their wine club members. <laughs> That's one thing I wanted to ask you because people do love wine, but yeah, they, it's a it's kind of a it's a very daunting world to get into because you almost feel like you have to be born into it. You know, Sometimes, in some yeah. shape or form. Yeah. Being born into it, I mean that you worked in restaurants from a young age and you learned your way up or your parents had a great knowledge of wine and they passed it down to you. Mm-hmm. Some sort of connection. It's very rare that people develop it on their own terms and then mm. find their way into the industry. It's certainly not as common. I think it's becoming more and more common. But uh, but for sure, like you know, just in the course of doing running my own business and and receiving resumes or requests for for employment you know just inquiries as to whether there's job openings and whatnot and you know many of them are i just don't have any experience and i'm really interested to learn and unfortunately sometimes what i really need is someone who does have experience you know and so it is it is difficult to jump in and i really think that you know, I, I don't know to this day if, if it, that is the reason why I got hired, but I'm pretty sure it was a good, strong reason, you know, that I had some hook. I had some additional service to offer to this particular winery, and that's you were, you what got me in the door. didn't simply just have an interest. It was, it yeah, was more, you know, because, sure, there's lots of people who love wine, and, you know, when you get into wine, you know, of course, from the outside, it looks like it's all wonderful and it's very glamorous, but, you know, as we all know in the food and beverage industry, it's a lot of late nights. It's a 24-7 job because it's hospitality, and it's never turned off. Um, it's also can be very grueling work. You know, if you're if you're a psalm on the floor in New York City, you might be working until two, three, four o'clock in the morning. You know, it's it's restaurant work. Um, it's a lot of late nights. Um, where if you just run any sort of food and beverage establishment, you're working late into the evening. Um, you might be open six, seven days a week. Um, you know, when you're in production, it's messy. It's a lot of physical work. Um, it's long hours for extended period of time during harvest season. You know, it's and one thing I want to ask you is because people let me think of how I want to say. It. So, say for example, now mm-hmm. food. Yeah, food is something that is a personal evolution throughout your life. Mm, yeah, because you have your your set foundation of foods that you eat or foods that you're used to, foods that you grew up with. And as you grow up, you're introduced to more things. Mm -hmm. So you can constantly build on that. And then if you go into restaurants, if you wanted to, or anything like that, or you go out for a meal, I had something similar to this. I can build on and have something similar the next time. At what stage was it where you felt that your knowledge of wine clicked? Mm. And another question is, where is an easier place to find an understanding of wine? Because going out to restaurants and getting a bottle of wine and seeing Mm -hmm. if it works for you, 
it's kind of a hit or miss thing because you're literally learning maybe once a week, once every two weeks, once yeah. a month, and it's hard to it's hard to retain. That, mm-hmm. that palette of your wines. Yeah, it's it's a thing that has to be practiced pretty continuously. Um, and some, I think really the best way to do it, well, I, because there's the expensive way to do it, and that's to take all kinds of classes and, and whatnot. I think at the end of the day, there is a certain monetary investment that you have to put into it because you have to taste. You have to smell and taste because you can read all the books you want, but without the experiential knowledge... If you don't have the opportunity, you know, it's like trying to describe the color red when you've never seen the color red. You know, how do you do that? Right. So, you know, at one point or another, you have to spend some money on wine itself so you can taste. But some of the best ways to do that is to find great wine bars or, or other restaurants that have really good uh, happy hour specials, or maybe they have a prefix special or a pairing special or something like that. So maybe you don't have to go out and buy a whole bottle, but you can get a glass of something. Um, and maybe there's an opportunity if you go on a Monday or a Tuesday night when it's not a Friday and a Saturday where there may be somebody who's there that you can actually ask questions who may have some time. Any spots you'd recommend in New York City? Oh, to be honest, <laughs> to be quite honest, I, um, since I haven't been living in the city, I am not current. <laughs> right. Let's scratch that one off the yes. list. <laughs> yeah. I need some advice on that. Actually. <laughs> I know a lot of places that I want to go that I haven't gotten to yet. So, um, uh, or there is some really great reading to be had. Um, and if if you're willing to drop a few hundred dollars on classes, I really loved the um, the Wine and Spirits Education Trust of London courses. Uh, uh, I did up to the uh, advanced certificate level. And um, it's just comprehensive. It's a good functional class, really understanding wines, how they're made, wine regions. Um, it's not as focused on service as is the uh, Quarter of Sommeliers. Um, but between those two bodies, you can get a very comprehensive knowledge of not speci- of, of both specifically about wine and also of its proper service. Um, Wonderful. I'm going to take yeah. those tips for myself. Yeah. Uh, International Culinary Center and ICE, they have some good courses as well. Um, but I think, you know, for some experiential knowledge, if you find a couple of good spots and even a couple of good wine shops, you know, and don't, the thing is, I, th- I think the real key is to just not be afraid to ask questions. You know, for it's at least in our tasting room at Brooklyn Enology, I've always wanted it to be comfortable where people can come ask questions because, after all, it is just it's it's a beverage. You know, it's not like we're curing cancer or doing something really grandly, you know, life saving and important here. You know, it's meant to be joyful and it's meant to be. Um, Enjoyable. If you do it three times a day, it shouldn't be all that serious. I mean, yes, take it seriously and be uh, look for quality. There's no reason not to have quality in your everyday food and beverage experience. But it's about fun and pleasure. So ask questions. Nobody is born knowing this stuff. And um, and if somebody's giving you a hard time, we'll find somebody nicer to ask. <laughs> <laughs> Some great tips. <laughs> ask me. <laughs> um, we are going to go to a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to touch on the development of Brooklyn Enology and the wine production procedures that you go through. Sounds good. And this one's called Walking Like a Cowboy by Talkstar. We'll be right back. State cares about New York's farmers. That's why we've developed the New York State Grown and Certified Program. 
It's a seal New Yorkers can look for when they're shopping for food that comes from local farms. Customers are more likely to buy food that has the New York State grown and certified seal because it tells them that it comes from a farm that follows environmentally responsible, farm-safe protocols. In other words, the New York State grown and certified seal tells them their food is grown right, right here in New York State. You're a farmer with a lot to do, but the time it takes to sign up for the program is a great investment for your business because it lets shoppers know that your food meets higher standards, has passed assessments, and is produced by environmentally friendly farming practices. To learn about participating in the program, go to certified.ny.gov. Welcome back to Why Food. I'm here with Ali Shaper from Brooklyn Enology. We just got some wonderful, wonderful tips on how to learn a little bit more about wine. And I've taken them all on a very personal level because I personally need to learn a lot more about wine. <laughs> um, so, Ali, yeah. Mm-hmm. Brooklyn Enology. It came yes. along six years ago. Uh, well, it ten, came ten, ten years, years ago, ago yeah. but the, the base itself in Williamsburg six years ago. Yeah. Um, so I got the, the company started in 2006 and... Uh, started selling only through the wholesale channels uh, in 2007. So literally, you know, running around with one of those sample bags and knocking on doors, making phone calls, that kind of thing. Um, And then opened the tasting room in 2010. And uh, yeah, and 10 years have flown, flown by. (laughs) And what was was your vision when you you set up Brooklyn Analogy? Well, I was... I was really excited about living in Brooklyn, um, and I came to live here because I thought it was just a really vibrant, creative community, and surrounding not just the arts, but also the foods. You know, it, it was. I moved into Brooklyn in 2005, and it was really just starting to percolate with the whole local food movement. What part of Brooklyn did you move to? I was in Carroll Gardens at the time, uh, and then I eventually moved into, I moved to Williamsburg, um, yeah, that was in 2010 that I moved into Williamsburg. So I was in Cow Gardens a little bit more than five years. And um, there are a couple of really great restaurants. Um, there was uh, the grocery, there was Saul, and a couple other really great places. They were sort of these leaders in farm-to-table in the local area. And, um, you know, and just everywhere you look, there was art. There was art everywhere. And uh, it was literally just one day I was just strolling around in Red Hook and reading some of the placards there that described the history of the Beard Street warehouses and everything like that. And it was talking about uh, their history as, as part of the waterfront and so on and how now they're housing these small businesses. There was a parachute manufacturer and a glassblower and uh, maybe a small marketing firm um, and a couple other things. And then all of a sudden it occurred to me like, oh, you know, this is like a real transformation that's that's happening here and I went it would be so amazing to do a brand that 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 speaks to this transformation you know this phenomenon happening in the community because the more I thought about it and the more I started looking around that realizing oh we're you know it's switching from this heavy industrial history to this sort of new uh, modern artisanal industry and you know just all of a sudden all these thoughts came flooding in and like oh yeah of course there's Brooklyn Brewery you know, yeah you could totally do a beverage company here. Why not? You know, and sort of my idea was do it in the Beard Street warehouses. I didn't have the funds for that. So good thing Red Hook Winery did something out of it. <laughs> so, and, um, it's, you know, but at the time, um, uh, I wasn't quite, I, I wasn't quite ready to make the leap. I had been working in the wine industry for quite a while at the, at the time. And, and, um, I was still doing 
some uh, day job engineering as well. So, um, but it really colluded as this concept of celebrating, you know, what I now term you know, Brooklyn terroir, and it's taking that idea of terroir in terms of you know the climate and the soil and, and where the grape is grown, but extending that definition to the sense of place as far as a community. So in the development of the brand of Brooklyn Enology, the idea was to work with uh, Brooklyn-based artists and pair their pair modern contemporary pieces being made in Brooklyn right now with the wines that we produce. So and use only grapes from New York. So really draw from these terrific agricultural resources that we have surrounding our state and surrounding New York City. And you know, doing really great, well-crafted wines, because wine it should be, and you know to reflect that that's this sort of culinary renaissance that was happening in the borough, and then marry that up with the the art scene that was here, and have this line of wines be an expression of what it means to be a part of this world here in Brooklyn. I consider it a very humane approach to wine. Well, thanks. Yeah, yeah because you kind of <laughs> you've stripped all the old world ostentatious displays out of wine and you've brought it to a much more approachable sense the fact that you can peel off the stickers and you can you can look at it as a piece of art you know yeah you're looking at it from two sides that what lies on the outside is just well it's not just as important but what lies on the outside is crucial Mm -hmm. and so is what is on the inside i mean certainly you know if you want to have a successful product you have to have good packaging but it wasn't just about having good packaging for me It it was much more about um yeah, that, that human aspect to it, that it's not just about selling you something. It's about getting joy out of life and appreciating what we have and the resources that we have around us and, and admiring and having gratitude for the talent that surrounds us and being able to be a part of this whole story of, of, of the borough, uh, contribute something to it and maybe give back to it a little bit. You know? um, and that's really what all of my winemaking is about for me. It's about sending out a positive message and it's about... Um, you know, sharing sharing joy. You know, I put that passion in everything that I do into all the wines that I make. I would say food progression kind of turned a, really turned into a different stride maybe 15 years ago mm. where you went away from sticking to all the traditional techniques and all the traditional forms and the layout of a restaurant to creating it in your own way and, and creating nouveau uh, displays of foods. Mm-hmm. And it, you, pretty much now with food, you can do whatever you want if you feel like you want to display it in something that res- replicates you. Yeah, do you think point. wine is going through that same progression or are people accepting of it? Did they accept it when you I started working so. on It was, I, uh, yes and no. You know, I certainly had some potential customers who kind of side wine to get at the side eye and go, mm, you know, that looks gimmicky. And then other people who are, who are all on board with the idea. Um, and I can certainly see both sides, you know, both sides of, of opinion there. Because I'm sure there's so many people who just only know about old world wines. Yeah, and, and people you know, love classic. You know, of course, when, when a wine says Brooklyn on it, you wonder where the water came from, of course. Yeah, hopefully not Kiwanis. <laughs> right. You know, of course, where are you growing the grapes? And I said, assure you, not in the empty lot next door, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but I think once once people became understood the story, you know, I had to get really good at, at developing that 15-second pitch, you know, to get out the little blurp yeah. <laughs> to get people to understand what it was about. Um, but I think once people saw that, you know, I wasn't just trying to make a hot buck, that I was really serious about my craft. And um, then people understood what the intention was. And yes, I do think that 
wine and beers and really all of the craft beverage movement is moving in this direction where you can play and it be perfectly acceptable as a quality product um, because that's isn't that the whole idea is to create you know and if it's not about self-expression well then it's just about repetition and to me that doesn't seem very exciting so you know to do something with your own little tweak and twist on it yeah yeah that's and you must be very proud to go back to long island to be able to produce something from the land there yeah well now i am yeah i i don't know if i was always enthusiastic ab- about that but that's a whole other <laughs> that's a whole other thing but um yeah, I, I really love my community on the North Fork, you know, and it's a different... Um, it's brimming with wineries now. It's brimming, yeah, and and there's that uh, there's that sense of community um, and partnership between the players in the agricultural and the hospitality industries out there. So it's not just partnership between wineries, it's between the wineries and the breweries and the distilleries and the restaurants and the B and B's and the the chicken grower chicken farmers and the vegetable growers and everybody who's really interested in making it a vibrant community um, that is passionate about providing good quality food with low impact on the environment and 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 we all do business together and do business with each other. Um, it's it's fascinating. It's really fascinating to see how you know, this everyday ritual that we have of, of eating and drinking can really build a strong community and not just in the spiritual sense, but also in the economic sense. I just want to go back to the, the topic of being humane because mm. I went to your wine launch last week yeah, and I went in there and it was in a lovely setting um, on the Lancy and there was some live music and there was some bread and there were some cured meats mm-hmm. and you were standing there behind the wines at the table mm-hmm. and I thought, this looks great. <laughs> and then I got a piece of paper with the wines listed on it. I was blown away because I had never seen oh. that kind of approach to wine. You know that how you mm. would how you would name the wines, the story that you had ah. behind the wine. You know, mm. you going back to the humane approach. You would can you just tell us a bit about as if the yeah. recent wines that you've just launched? Yeah, it was great to, to see you at that launch yeah. too. Thanks. Yeah, yeah. So the the as if wines are a new project. So we, that launch you were at was sort of the official debuting. Um, I had bottled the white and rosé last year and had done uh, just a soft launch and started selling them in the tasting room, but I was waiting for the red to be mature and, and ready to do the official um, release of, of everything. And those wines are really, I wanted to do something on a more personal level um, that expressed my gratitude for how I came to be at this point in my life for not only having figured out what it is that I'm, that I love to do on a day-to-day basis, but Figuring that out is difficult in enough by itself. And then having the opportunity to even do anything about it, to the chance to pursue that, that's a huge gift from the universe. And becoming a winemaker and building a business and completely switching career paths and, and forging this whole new destiny for myself um, was a huge lesson in learning who I am. And what I'm good at, what I'm not good at. Um, and so these three wines, I wanted to be sort of the core message of, of what I think that anybody could take away from, from feeling lucky in life. Um, so the white I named Serendipity. Um, and Serendipity is, I, I gave each of the wines a little like tagline too. So Serendipity is the delivery of opportunity to one ready to receive it. Because opportunity can come, but if you don't recognize it, you're not capable or not quite ready to 
be able to identify it, then it comes and it, and it goes. But when you are open to seeing something, then you see it, and then you can do something with it. You can you can grab onto it. The I'm in rose, total agreement with that. Yeah, yeah, you know, so it's more than just chance or luck. Yeah. It's also you know being in that frame of mind where you say, "Oh, I can do something with that." But then it takes courage, which is the rose, to, to to begin to begin that journey, and because you can see an opportunity and say to yourself, "Oh, I don't know. What about what if this goes wrong? And what if?" that happens and uh you know and you can start second guessing yourself or maybe get caught up in the idea of all the risk involved but there's just as much risk in doing as in as there is in not doing and so courage i call the undaunted heart of action and so it's when you really have to pick yourself up by the bootstraps grab onto your vision and pick somewhere and start to say go and after thereafter it requires a lot of persistence, which is the red. <laughs> so, and persistence is to tenaciously challenge opposition in pursuit of a vision. And as we all know in this business, it has a lot of highs and has a, many lows, and you have to ride out a lot. And it's challenging work, and it's continuous work, um, but it can be extraordinarily rewarding. And it takes that drive and that push and reaching deep down inside of yourself over and over and over and over again. And this can be said really for anything that anybody wants to do in life. You know, it's, and for me, this serendipity, courage, and persistence are touchstones and values that I go back to with myself almost on a daily basis now. You know, now that I've identified what these things are, it's, when I come to a difficult point, you know, I, I need to go back and refer to these three things to remind myself that you know, we have these three gifts. Um, and that if you, the, the message behind these wines is if there's something that's out there that you really dream about and you really want to do, you can. And it's, it's not simple and it's not easy and it doesn't necessarily boil down to three words, but there are those little touchstones from which you can gain some strength and, and, start, and start somewhere. That's amazing. I think, it gives, <laughs> I think it gives so much more strength by approaching wine like that to food and wine than it does to simply saying this is a grape and it was aged and it came from this region and the soil is rich and great mm-hmm, mm-hmm. taste it yeah. you know by giving it a story like that similar to, to trying a dish of food and knowing that it came from the chef's grandmother's tradition from a region that she was from in Europe and now mm-hmm. the chef is living in a part of Brooklyn and the chef, the chef has developed it it's the same kind of thing you know and it's, 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 it's an ability to relate to it yeah it's the, it's the story of why you know, because, and I don't want this to sound. Uh, uh, well, anyway, I'll just say it. <laughs> you know, anyone could choose to to be to make a plate of spaghetti or you know to ferment some grapes or what have you. Not you know not to make not to make it sound small or anything like that. It's it's the whole reason that drive, and that's what these stories are. It's it's the why did you decide to pick those grapes? Why did you decide to, to give that care and thought into these things? You know because it's coming from somewhere where you feel love and and, and gratitude, and food and beverage at the end of the day is about sharing with one another. And if we can do that through through such a simple ritual and 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 show each other. Um, how much we appreciate being in this world and being as a part of each other's world. That kind of makes the world go around, I think. 
So this is a, this is an industry that you're in love with. You love it. <laughs> I fall in love with it over and over again. Yes, it's it, it has taught me so much. It has really taught me so much. Has it been easy? Because Mm-mm. for it's it's a topic that comes up all the time. Ladies mm-hmm. in the hospitality industry mm-hmm. being in food, mm-hmm. they don't get it easy. I'm sure the same goes across the board in wine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and as, having worked in bo- as both um, a winemaker. But also in a in technical work, you know, as an engineer, um, there continues to be challenges. To, you know, I've been working professionally for twenty years in one capacity or another, and even before that, you know, I had plenty of high school jobs and college jobs and things like that. And certainly, things have have changed. And I feel really lucky that I was born at a time where the feminist movement was really starting to become a, a, a real strong thing. I shouldn't say become a real strong thing. It was a very strong part of life, of culture. And it's it's moved a lot of things for a lot of women. And most importantly, women have come to support each other that much more. Um, used to be you used to have to fight for your space, but now we, I, I find so much more that women create space for each other. And even so... Uh, lots of men create space for women as well, um, but that isn't that isn't the case across the board. There is still a lot of in your industry, though. Yeah. It's still very it's still very male dominated, is it? It's it's yeah, it's still male dominated. But holy cow, the changes in the last ten years and the number of women that I know that are either in production or in, in a high level job in the industry in some form or another, or just simply the number of women at all. Right. Working in the local wine industry has dramatically increased, dramatically. And it's really exciting. And for the most part, I see support. And, you know, the, the, the difficulty with men and women in the workplace together, it's not difficulty between them, but the signs of, the signs of where there's still resistance to women, they're so very subtle and can be so hard to recognize because it's, people know it's not PC to be outwardly sexist. And so there's been semantics and language that's been developed, you know, and I almost, I I didn't really realize it myself. You know, maybe if you had asked me this question five years ago, I might have said, oh, yeah, you know, it seems like everything's really equal now and there's almost no work to be done. But over the last five years, as I've gotten further along into running my company, I hear things from time to time as I conduct my business on any given day that... Some some men say things differently to me than they would say it to me if I were a man approaching them with my product, and you know, and it and it just it started to dawn on me a, a few years ago, going, well, that was weird, and walking away from meetings, going, why do I feel like a, I just got treated like a little girl, right and then now? The penny drops in your Yeah, and then I started to recognize, you know, it's all those these little things, so. It's it's a little bit harder sometimes to to see, but it's really there. It's really there. Um, well, we we have ladies like Cherry Bomb, you know, just on here on air before us, who are who are definitely changing the tide, and mm-hmm. and women are getting more of a voice on uh, across the board within mm-hmm. all industries. I suppose we're focusing on hospitality here, mm-hmm. and that's what Cherry Bomb focuses on. But uh, organizations like that certainly. Yeah. 
push the boat out a little bit further and yeah. um, make their voices a little bit louder. The good news is that women are offering each other a lot of support. There's a lot of terrific forums. Um, one that I joined recently was uh, the Tokla Society Facebook group, and it's all women in the food and beverage industry on it. And some, it's a lot of just networking, but I mean, to see the huge number of members of this group, you go, holy smokes, you know. Um, it must be pretty inspiring. It is. It is really inspiring. And uh, I have a couple of, of uh, girlfriends. <laughs> we call each other uh, WWGSD, uh, which stands for Women Who Get Stuff Done. Ooh! Yeah. <laughs> Stuff is a different word, but I can't say on there. But, um, <laughs> but you know, it's like, yeah, get out there. And, and um, you know, and the good news is we have each other. We have each other to rely on. Um, uh, but also good news is that we've got we've got a lot of men out there who are really rooting for us as well. And I hope that that tradition continues. As long as we continue to pass those values down to the next generation and the next generation, it can only get better. You know, what another person uh, with whom I recently did an interview, they asked, you know, you know, what do you see for the future? And I said, you know, I would love to see a future where this isn't even a question. You know, where my biology really has nothing to do with it, you know, because all everything I've done has come out of my head, not out of any other of my body parts. <laughs> That's a very good point, yeah. Yes. <laughs> kind of puts it in perspective, yeah, doesn't it? Right. <laughs> it's all come out of my brain. <laughs> so Ali, just yeah. before we leave, I want to ask you, what has the food and wine industry given you uh, before you ever got into it? It's given me myself, most of all. Yeah. That's the most important thing. Yeah, yeah. It's it's, it's shown me who I am. Um, it's enabled me to find joy, to learn so many things about Zen and rolling with it, and uh, and also learning how to do things really well, let go of perfection. S- still working on that, um, and and to really reach parts of myself that I didn't know were there wonderful thank you Ali you've been a wonderful guest on Why Food you've certainly embodied the story of One Industry Fits All which is what we're trying to express that by putting the effort and putting your soul behind something you can do anything in the food and drink industry it has been all my pleasure thank you so much and I'd like to extend my thanks to the wonderful people at Heritage Radio Network for giving the industry an incredible platform to communicate and engage if you want to listen to more shows or learn more about the network please visit heritageradionetwork.org I want to thank the great David Tadashore for producing today's show. If you want to get in touch, you can do so by emailing whyfood at heritageradionetwork.org. I'm constantly trying to feed more, find more and more interesting people who have made the transition from a past career into the food industry. So if you know of anybody, please do get in touch. If you enjoyed today's show, please do rate it and review it on iTunes and Stitcher. Next week, I'll be chatting to Timothy Casper, previously a teacher who is now the head chef at the wonderful Pasquale Jones. One industry fits all. Thanks very much for listening, guys. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. 
Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.